This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This week on Hangar Talk, helicopter legislation hovers over the heads of pilots all over New York. And Delta pledges $60 million to Joby for eVTOL advancement. The EPA shocks no one by saying there's lead in aviation gas. And the 32nd NAL report is released. Finally, it's NBAA time. We cover the news. Ian, are you ready to do some Hangar Talk? Let's do it, David. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. The 1056 turn right heading 130, counterpack final 132. Turn right, With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulitz. David, our guests, guests, plural, this week. I'm really excited to bring them on. Just very recently, I talked to the Rutherford family, almost all of them. You remember Zara. We had her on the show. She was an around-the-world flyer yeah, pilot, Yeah, right? Yeah, Alyssa Cobb caught up with her when she was, uh, I don't, I don't, want, don't want to say she was marooned in Alaska, but right. she was in Alaska sure she for felt that way. quite a while. Yeah, yeah this is yeah. A, a couple of years ago. So we haven't talked about this much, but her younger brother, Mac, also flew around the world Dad is Sam, mom is B. They're all pilots, and I was able to catch up almost with all of them. So we'll have them on a little later, talk about the family dynamic and what it's like as a parent to have your young child fly all around the world by themselves. So I had a great time talking to them. Really, really glad they came on the show. Well, I can't wait to hear what you guys talked about. It's uh, going to be really cool. Yeah. So let's jump into the news. Not a whole lot of deep stuff this week, but some kind of top line stuff we want to make sure and cover. The first being that things are run amok in the legislature in New York. The There's this new piece of legislation. The only way you can describe it as hostile to helicopter uh, totally. pilots, owners, operators, and that's the point. Basically, what this allows people to do is take matters into their own hands and file lawsuits against operators. And they could be frivolous lawsuits, Ian, and it doesn't take much to, to file uh, something underneath this proposition, the Stop the Chop Senate Bill 7493 Alpha, and it's intended to, you know, okay, there's some noise pollution in New York. I totally get it. Yeah. You know, everywhere you go, you hear cars honking, you know, drivers mm-hmm. yelling, things like that. Mm-hmm. And it could be a little unnerving if there's a lot of helicopters flying around. But, you know, the thing is, this could be very frivolous. A citizen could file a complaint against a flight department, a pilot, line service personnel or the company operating the helicopter so pretty much it could be a blanket possibility of of throwing a a damp you know blanket over the whole thing yeah and that's really the point i mean they they created this essentially to scare people away from the city and from operating helicopters and 
I, you know, there's so many things you can say about this from a sort of a class warfare standpoint to, I mean, you mentioned, and I think you're absolutely right. It's like New York is a loud place. It's a loud city. It is already. Yeah. Sure it is. Okay, sure fine. Is. There's helicopter noise, but there's a lot of traffic noise and a lot of other noise. One thing that's interesting is they, the AOPA, we have a story right now detailing the noise complaints. They went from, I think it was, what is it? 10,359 in 2020 to 25,821 in 2021. Well, that's two and a half times the amount. Yeah. The reason being, of course, that people started working from home, right? Oh, that's a good point. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's like, you know, being out of the office, like you're, I think first you tolerate more when you're in the office, right? It's probably louder. Um, Who knows? Maybe the, where people work is not as close to the helipads. I don't really know. I think when you're at home, right, that stuff might get to you a little more. So to me, this is just a, it's sort of a, uh, condition of the pandemic. Also, I would be super curious to know how many individual people made complaints because I know at a lot of airports you'll get thousands of complaints from one person or, or from a group, a consortium yes. that has uh, organized itself to be the, the the sounding board. You know, and, yeah, yeah, and you hear from the same people over and over. Yeah, you can imagine like a thousand of those twenty-five thousand are from one person, right? So yeah, yeah. You know what? They're missing the point on a couple of things, though, Ian. Here's the thing. You know, these kind of helicopter operations, and there's sightseeing operations involved, but there's also regular commercial helicopter operations going from point A to point B, getting people to JFK, to LaGuardia, and that's, you know, totally legit. But, But listen... That brings in a lot of money. It brings in tax revenue. Where the it brings in jet A fuel for the for the turbine helicopters, and that is something that I would think that New York could use to you know perhaps bolster some of their aviation services. Yeah. You know, instead of cutting out the tax revenue that's coming in, you know, cutting that out underneath the feet of the folks who are actually doing a pretty good job of this. So, yeah. 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 That's right. Yep. Hey, moving on. EVTOL, we like to touch on this every once in a while, and especially when there's a big investment, which there was recently. Delta Airlines has pledged $60 bucks and an equity stake in probably one of the, what you would call the leader, if, if not one of the leaders of the VTOL market, and that's Joby. Yeah, we want to give props to AvWeb, who posted this not long ago. The thing is, I think that this operation is to kind of crank up in New York and Los Angeles sort of the home to airport transportation sector um, that eVTOLs might play a role in. So I think looking to the future, that might be the way that eVTOLs, you know, gain a a foothold in aviation, you know, being that in-betweener thing. The traffic is horrendous in New York and Los Angeles. We were just talking about that. I was going to say, wait, I'm like, you know, I was wondering if I tuned you out. Are you saying that that this is to move people from their homes in the cities to the airports, right, to catch a Delta flight? Yeah, because the the story um, indicates that it's the opportunity to reserve a seat for the seamless zero operating emission short range journeys to and from city airports when booking Delta travel. So Delta has just invested 60 million bucks in a company that uh, to skip New Yorkers over the will, traffic will right. sue out of existence in the first uh, year of operation, right? I mean, we'll see what happens. Yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> but Del- you know, a, a, a big a big air carrier like Delta, here are a couple of things, a couple of key takeaways just thinking off the top of my head. First of all, Delta has a pretty good reservation system right now, mm-hmm. and they know how to make that. They know how to make that infrastructure work. They know how to price the stuff. 
you know, they know how to they they know how to move people. So they've already got you know ways to move passengers hither and yonder. So it's not a great leap to think that that they could just take that down to the to the micro level yeah. a little bit, if you will. Yeah, I so. mean, I guess the way this would have to work is it's not like they're going to be able to land on every building in the city. So it must be there'd have to be like it'd have to be like neighborhood service. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. You know, there are so many unused buildings. You know, we were talking about COVID nineteen a little while ago in reference to the, the New York, you know, noise. And I just wonder if maybe some of these buildings that went vacant when people started to work more from home might have parking lots available for this type of of intermediate air operation, you know, from a vertical takeoff and landing standpoint, which you could, in fact, infer you could do the same thing with helicopters right now. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Interesting. Okay, so going from electric, which is, of course, going to be battery or hybrid powered, to Avgas, our, our current fuel, and a move that surprised no one that we were expecting. So I think mostly this is about, you know, let's not freak out. The EPA has issued a proposed lead endangerment finding, which essentially means an NPRM that will come out that says lead in aviation fuel is a polluter, and eventually maybe we should get rid of it. Yeah, and Jim Moore, who wrote this story, says, I love, I love the way he put this in there. This is news to nobody, <laughs> certainly not the Eliminate Aviation Gasoline Lead Emissions Group, which is EGLE, which we've talked, you know, the EGLE group we've talked about quite a bit. And we expected this. That's why we tried to get ahead of it yet again recently yes. with Eagle, which was, uh, I guess, first came together probably about a year ago, unless I'm jumbling up my facts, you know. Uh, now, you know, I want to say it was at the first of this year. Sounds about really. right. We had a, a meeting in Washington, D.C. But AOPA has been a, a part of that initiative to limit or get rid of lead for, we talked about this before, 10, 15, 20 years at least. That's right. We knew this was going to happen. So, But you're right. It sets up a process for uh, public comment, which is important. And it also really brings that 2030 deadline into closer focus. Yeah, that's right. And and I think you can see how this issue has kind of shifted over the years by the fact that it's like, okay, we're expecting this, you know, it's fine, it's going to be fine. Mark Baker has this quote in the story, which I think is really important. He said, first, we all want the let out. Okay, so we're all in agreement there. Second, today's announcement has no impact on the use or sale of 100 low lead, as I've said in the past. So don't freak out, you're still going to have, well, most airports around the country, unfortunately, there are a few in California. Except for yeah. California, right, right. Yeah, you'll have Avgas. Mark says, as I've said in the past, if this were easy, it would have been done already. And so sure. we'll have um, Paul Milner, AOPA's consultant expert on this later in a later show. Good. I look forward to that. Yes. Yeah, where he's going to describe the process. And it is difficult. I mean, forget about the technology to make the fuel. Actually, getting it to market is a huge challenge. We'll get into that. Anyway, he said... Nonetheless, we need a safe and smart transition, and we will continue to focus on our efforts assisting any FAA-approved unleaded fuels, any FAA-approved unleaded fuels, that's important, be realized for pilots as soon as possible. Yeah, and uh, the other thing is that, you know, we still already, well, we're looking forward to having some more choices. In September, the FAA approved GAMI's G100 UL fuel for pretty much every piston aircraft. And we've had Swift fuels available for quite a while, too. The, a little bit lower octane on that, the 94-octane aviation fuel that's safe for use in many smaller engines. And uh, Swift fuel's already in use around the country, especially in California, where they've had some bigger problems. So um, things are moving ahead. Don't forget, we could, you could also um, do a little search for AOPA's advocacy effort. There's a link 100 dash 
unleaded-avgas is you know one of one of our links there but 100 low lead is out there and we have a lot of information on it just go to our homepage and click on the top bar and we'll be right back all right david safety the null report came out this is our yearly uh review of ga accidents and incidents well i should say accidents i want to make sure i don't say incidents it's accidents ga accidents and continuing on a recent trend it's all pretty good news it is pretty good. Overall, the decrease in total accidents uh, went from 1,167 in 2019 to 1,051 in 2020. So that's a drop. That's pretty good. And then we need to look at the overall per flight hours on that accident rate, too. They also decreased from about 4.87 per 100,000 flight hours down to 4.69. So that's uh, two percentage points lower, which is pretty good. And then uh, fatalities also decreased from 0.89 to 0.83. Now, let's keep in mind it takes a couple of years to get the accident report into the NALA report. And we've heard a, about a couple of high-profile accidents uh, recently. So that will be in a future NALA report. You know, we took a, a little bit of a, of a dive into some of the breakdowns. You know, I'll list one if you want to go with another one. But one thing that to me is a little curious is maneuvering accidents. That's an area that has had high lethality. And that saw a substantial decrease in fatal accidents uh, reaching a 10-year low. So that's pretty good. Maneuvering accidents, it, that's something that I don't really think about often. I usually think about landing accidents or takeoff accidents. Yeah, yeah, that is good. And of course, maneuvering, a lot of that is uh, FAA has been talking about that for a number of years now. So that's good. You know, the stuff that gets me, I think, is a little bit, I'm always interested in kind of the bonehead stuff that we continue to do. Oh, yeah. You know, fuel management, you can see that's gone down. That's really good. It has. Yep, it uh, it went down. I'm not. I can't do the math off the top of my head. Let's call it 10. percent It went from 69 accidents in 2019 to 58 That's good. in That's uh, good. 2020. That is good. One fewer fatality. Well, maybe we have more tools at our at our discretion now too. Don't forget yeah. a lot of the GPSs that we have in our aircraft. You could punch in, you know, how much fuel you have when you fill up, and kind of keep yes. an eye on that. Plus, we do have more accurate fuel gauges. The bottom line is that you still need to be looking at your watch and depend, you know, depend on if you got a headwind or not. Uh, like Dave Hirschman and I encountered the other day when we were flying back in the 182, <laughs> that will affect your your yeah. you know, fuel quantity. And, and you got to be on it. That's absolutely, right. absolutely. Yeah. The other thing for me is takeoff and landing accidents. I always look at those because um, you know uh, landing accidents are not usually terribly dangerous for us as people, right? I think in 2020 there were two fatalities. And they were both based on runway conditions. Well, I say two fatal accidents, I should say. But tons and tons of total accidents. Yes, And it's like if high. we could just keep it on the runway and not collapse the gear and everything. It's like the amount of insurance claims and the cost of insurance from takeoff landing accidents is just huge, it huge, is. huge. It's a, yeah, yeah, so you're right. Landing accidents continue to remain the leading type of accidents, but account for the yeah. lowest number of fatalities. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's that's why. I mean, I don't know if it's just because it's more challenging for people. I think it's because people don't like to invest in training, right? So they uh, they just go with the CFI every two years for their flight review, and then that's it. But really, we should be doing it more often. You should push yourself with the CFI, I think, especially in crosswinds. The other thing is that that was 
a couple of years ago really got me is as I looked at takeoff accents and stalls in particular, and they are, because we always talk about that base to final turn, but takeoffs during stalls during takeoff is actually a, a pretty big problem. And you can see here, I mean, it's like 53 accents from loss of control on takeoff. That's pretty significant, you know, stalled after stalled or settled on takeoff. So tw- 36 times that happened in 2020. I mean, that's, that's pretty, that's a lot. So I was flying with my daughter, Lauren, when she was a, a very young, young lady. And uh, mm-hmm. we were taken off in the Mooney out of Atlanta at Peachtree DeKalb Airport. And so I can see how a takeoff accident could occur because I said, all right, Lauren, follow through on the yoke for this one. And she pulled that thing back into her gut, like, and we turned into a rocket <laughs> ship. It was like virtually straight up in the air. And I said, Lauren, uh, uh, Dad has controls again. And so I yeah, right. pushed the nose over. But you know what, Ian? <laughs> if you're not careful uh, about that, and listen, on in, in, in all seriousness, in a Cessna 182, in a you know, in a go around situation, because you got to trim that pretty much nose high when oh you're coming gosh, in yeah. to land. And if yeah. you add the power to that, that airplane is going to pitch up pretty severely you really need to push forward you know immediately so i understand how some sometimes that can happen the rv12s that we have here on our flight line for training you know those are pretty light pretty light airplanes and it's pretty easy to over rotate something like that too yeah that's true that's true yeah i think i mean you know the name of the game on takeoff is and go around too it's like just chill out man it's like the airplane flies really well. Just, you know, put in the power, pay attention, and just, you know, just chill out. There's there's no need to haul back really hard. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> I recently flew with you. I don't know if, if our listeners uh, realize that, but I came down to visit with you not long ago. We were doing some stories, but you are a very chill pilot. I was impressed, you know. And <laughs> it comes, You know what? Once you're an instructor and your student, it's like Lauren, right, goes – I had a student, it's like, we landed and I thought, oh, this is all good. He's doing great. And all of a sudden, for no reason, we just start, I mean, it's like he made a beeline for a runway light. I mean, just boom, veers yeah. off towards the side of the run. It's like, when that stuff happens to you, after a while, you're just kind of like, ah, it's all good, you know? Like, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, uh, I'm glad so, I'm glad you were yeah. patient with me when we uh, when we were flying together. And that's a really neat little airplane. Folks, just to remind folks, you've got a, a, a part interest in a Cessna 172 XP which is a pretty pretty high-performance aircraft, but it's really a lot of fun to fly. It is fun, yeah. Yeah, we had a good time. All right, David, NBAA, it's going on just, what, this week, right, as we record this? So, you know, we'd like to always sort of, I guess, give a, the top line of what's going on, and I would say nothing earth-shattering, but lots of little announcements and a big focus on SAF. Yeah, yeah, I think SAF was the talk of the town. You know, Bombardier said that they're going to cover all of its, they already cover all of their flight operations right now with sustainable aviation fuel, or SAF, and they deal with Signature a lot on that, too. I think that's a step in the right direction. They do a lot of their demo flights with SAF. Yep. From an economic standpoint, jet sales have bounced back. Mm-hmm. I think that is something to look at, too. You know, when we look at these figures, the sales figures and deliveries and all, we still got to remember that this is, um, as we record this, we're in 2022. 2019 was the last, quote unquote, like normal year, you know, a bit of, yeah. bit of 2020 maybe. Um, but Honeywell, they always have an update on business aviation and they, Announced the findings at the NBAA, and and it's there's some pretty high numbers there. They uh, predicted a 10-year global forecast that is 8,500 aircraft. So that's a lot. It counts for the deliveries counted for 274 billion bucks. Didn't do the math on that. 
My math ain't great. That's a lot. But uh, that's a lot of money for 8,500 business jet deliveries. It is. So that's their forecast, and they say it's like huge compared to last year, bouncing back a lot faster. They're talking about demand back to 2015 levels. So that's all really good. I mean, really, the challenge, I think, is uh, obviously supply chain, which we've talked about. They could, you know, the manufacturers could push push more airplanes out the door if they could get the labor and the uh, and the raw materials. Right, so, right. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's this really interesting, and this, we saw this, I think, at Oshkosh and Sun and Fun, too. The, the mood, which is important, right? I mean, we sort of, uh, like, I know we always like to talk about it, but it is important because that talks about, you know, people's buying habits and how much they're flying and all that kind of stuff. The mood is good. It is. Um, people seem upbeat and they're talking about these really good indicators, but then there's no huge announcements. And I don't know if that still is down to the, the supply chain shortages and just not being able to, to develop new product or there was like a kind of an investment lull during COVID. I don't know what that's all about exactly, but... We're sort of, you know, little step-by-step kind of stuff with the SAF announcements, which I think are important. And then, you know, it's like, I don't know, the Honda Jet had, they talked about a new model. You know, there's just, there's just not enough, not a lot there. Just small incremental advances throughout the line, I, I think it would be the tone of the day. Yeah. But um, as we said right at the beginning, uh, SAF, Sustainable Aviation Fuel, that's key. You know, besides Bombardier, for instance, Embraer's already burning sustainable aviation fuel. And they mm-hmm. say that by 2050, all of its new jets will have zero carbon emissions Interestingly for Embraer, and I thought this was kind of cool and different, by 2030, 100% of the electricity Embraer uses will come from renewable sources. By that, I'm guessing solar power, windmills, you know, some of that hybrid hybrid battery storage technology. That to me is kind of cool. And as we are talking about that, I want to bring this into the equation just, just, just yesterday as we record this. President Biden went ahead and threw the gauntlet down for more development for the battery technology. And that could, le- that could lead to some of these advances, not just SAF, which is fuel, fuel, but there might be sort of a hybrid version of, of some of these uh, you know, business operations that we hadn't really thought about yet. Yeah. So, David, let's talk about, so we're going all the way from jets back down to little microlights, European microlights, the shark. The Rutherford kids, Zara and Mac, uh, as we mentioned, both flown around the world successfully. Really young kids. It's an incredible achievement. I know lots of people like to say, oh, we shouldn't be encouraging kids to fly around the world. I say, forget about it. It's like these kids are well-trained. They come from a pilot family. Their, their mom's a pilot. Yes. They have the full support of their of their family. They're not doing any, you know, they they are uh, very experienced before they go. So anyway, I think this is these are great stories. I'd love to see this. And I was lucky enough to... Unfortunately, Zara was in class. She's in Stanford. And so we couldn't get her on the call, but we were able to get Sam, Dad, Mom, B, and Mac. Well, so we've got most of the whole Rutherford family here. Sam, B, and Mac, thank you all so much for joining me. I'm really excited to talk to you as a family, especially after all these accomplishments you've had over the past, what, year or year and a half, two years almost. So uh, welcome. 
Thank, Thank you, you very much. So we're we're all split up here because Sam and B, you guys are in home at Brussels and Mac, you're at school in the UK. And um, we're missing Zara because she's in class over at Stanford. So you guys are all over the globe now, but uh, together now, which I'm really excited about. So I just want to start kind of at the beginning, actually. I want to know when the conversations for these big trips began. I mean, you guys are, or Mac and Zara, you're so young. So obviously so much planning has to go into this. And and so you must have started talking about this incredibly young. Yes. So it was really like not long after my sister started planning her journey and it was starting to become a reality that I started thinking about something similar. And like I I had already gotten my license uh, in flying and I wanted to do something with it. I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do, uh, but I knew I wanted to do something with it. And this was just like an amazing thing. And I thought... I'll try and do something similar. And so that's how it all began. So you were, I think, just a little over 15 when you started. For us in the States, the rules are are different, obviously. We can't, you know, we can solo at 16 and get a license at 17. But you you were a pilot at, what, 15 and a half or something like that. Is that right? Uh, yes. So, like, basically, two months after I got my, uh, I, I turned 15, I got my license. So I had I went especially to France just to take my license because it's the only place in the world where you can get one at 15. And took all the tests. Luckily, I was able to pass, and um, I was unable to, to become a pilot. That's great. So, you come from a flying family. Sam and B, you you're both pilots. Sam, I think you fly professionally, and and B maybe just for fun. So, tell me a little bit about your flying backgrounds. You go. Uh, well, okay. So, um, yeah, I started flying helicopters in the army, British army, um, and part of the training for that, of course, uh, is starting on aeroplanes, small aeroplanes, on mm-hmm. chipmunk. Uh, and then I did eight years flying helicopters in the army uh, and then left. Uh, I was being threatened with promotion into a desk job, uh, which didn't fill me with huge amounts of glee or excitement. So I left um, and have continued to fly since then. Still some rotary, but now mostly uh, small fixed wing. And B, um, you, you fly as well. Yeah. On my side, I, I remember flying with, with my father when I was a young child. And so my father and my grandfather were both recreational pilots. So I think it was a dream that remained at the back of my mind. And at some stage, I must have told Sam because uh, some some early Christmas on, he he gave me flying lessons as a as a present, and that's how it all started. So I learned to fly recreationally, and then um, and then we did uh, big long trips together, mainly through Africa, and then and then different things, wow. and we took the kids and in uh, car seats in 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 the plane and took them to mozambique and south africa and kenya amazing so so the kids were exposed at a young age then uh, in these long really uh, some over water over desolate terrain that sort of thing that was almost normal for them growing up i guess i think so up to a point yes yeah i mean so certainly um since since very young you know we 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 tended to go to places using a small plane rather than a car Mm. um Mm. That, that's actually much more common in the U.S. than it is, frankly, anywhere else in the world. Um, so sure. you, you guys in the U.S. really have got it all sorted out in, in terms of really using airplanes to to do cool and funky stuff, and even normal and mundane stuff. But uh, but the last few years, uh, we've been living in Brussels. Both the children were at school in England, and to and from school was done with the plane. So uh, you know they'd be taking six or seven flights uh, you know, back and forth uh, per month. So it really yeah. became you know, the, the family vehicle. Wow. How about that? So the, the, the trips, the around the world trips, you, you started planning a couple of years ago, I guess. 
to to Sam and B, when did you feel like the kids were ready? I mean, most parents have to deal with, you know, when are they going to let their kids drive? And a few lucky ones get to worry about when are they going to let their kids solo or maybe fly the airplane alone, something like that. But now you're talking about somewhere completely different, far flung. So when did you start to feel okay enough to really dive into the planning? I think that's, <laughs> I think that's very different timings for both of us. Sure. I think Sam was pretty ready almost immediately for both Sarah and Mac. For both, I had a big reluctance. <laughs> Strangely enough, with Zara, I, I, I picked her brain very early on because I wanted to know what her motivation was. She was also the first to talk about this. And I wanted to know absolutely for sure that she she really wanted this because I, I could foresee very difficult moments. And if she couldn't dig deep, that it, it wasn't it was not going to be possible. I also fairly early on realized that she was a legal adult and that I had nothing to say, basically. So I might as well, you know, be supportive rather than than be an obstacle if she was going to do it anyway. For Mac, it was a totally different story for me because Mac very early on said he wanted to go as well while Zara was still in the air. And I, I did just not even want to think about it. So I, I was very, very strict and said there was no way I was going to let him go. And the story evolved and Zara kept being in the air. And I said, we can talk perhaps when Zara and if Zara's back. But hmm. the trip was delayed a long time. So, so long, yeah. Kept pushing and asking till I snapped and said, "No, you're not going. Absolutely not." And then he um, he wrote me a really long letter because basically my argument was, "I I am convinced and I know you're an excellent pilot. That is not my worry. My worry is that you're only 16 years old, and that I'm afraid that it's going to be a very difficult thing to do considering your age." And he then wrote me an extremely long letter um, explaining why he was mature enough and why this was the right time for him. And uh, yeah, I cried over that letter because mm -hmm. I, I, I realized that he was basically telling me that this was his dream and, and that I might take away an opportunity from him that wouldn't arise anymore. And he was pleading me to let him go. So that was extremely difficult for, for me as a mother to to say yes to that absolutely um, but yeah. i did about two three weeks down the line it was his christmas present last year oh wow so mac you you at the risk of breaking your mother's heart you were this made this impassioned plea to do this so why did you feel like it had to be now did you feel very strongly that you wanted to to break the record and become the youngest or just that you wanted to to do this and you just felt like it was the right time um well it was the perfect time in terms of school so it if I had done it this year, say, I have my A-levels, which are the big end exams in the UK. There was basically no chance of me doing it now. And then life just keeps going. There's there's only a certain amount of time that you can delay things. You have to have a certain point where you just have to say, okay, this is, this is what my goal, this is what I want to do, uh, and I'm going to try and strive for it. And that was what I was also trying to show, that you can wait, but sometimes just go for it. Even if you're on the 18, even if you're still young, you can follow your dreams and they can come true. Hmm. So in addition to, to all of the flight planning, which is obviously a lot of work, I think a lot of people maybe don't realize the amount of work that goes in on, on the back end and all the approvals, 
all the overflight permits and the landing permits and everything else that must happen. And that takes a lot of time. And so to not even really get the go ahead for this until a couple of months before you left, I mean, you, you had an immense amount of work to do just in that, in that short period. Yes. So, so there was a lot of work and actually um, my parents were hugely helpful in that because if I'm somewhere in the Sudan, it's going to be, it's in Sudan, it's going to be very difficult to actually do anything. And my, both my parents are very experienced in those types of areas and in, both aviation but also in the paperwork side so mm. they were hugely helpful in that area and yes of course it's very difficult uh, but you have to keep moving forward keep trying to to solve the problems um, many of the much of the paperwork actually has to be done while you're actually on the way so for example mm. permits uh, they can only be done very very near to when you're actually going to enter the country yeah. so a lot has to be done on the go uh, but you just have to try and push forward and keep keep going Hmm. So how much of, of Zara's planning were you able to utilize? I mean, were, did you, I, I know the route was a little bit different. She took a little bit longer route in some places. You were a little faster. She had some issues in Russia, I know, just with visas and things. And it, it appears that you skipped that entirely, maybe because of her experience. So how much were you able to transfer over? Um, well, so th- there was definitely some, so definitely the experience definitely helped. Uh, but actually, I'm pretty sure that, that, that well, that there were many problems in terms of paperwork for me too. So I was stuck in Crete for a month and a half due to paperwork that had happened with the plane and with Egyptian permits. And then there was, I was stuck in Dubai for another month and a half due to permits again for Iran and places further on. So it wasn't, even on the paperwork side, even with all the experience, there are issues. But <laughs> like I said before, you just have to keep moving forward like the the there were there were certain times where it was very difficult to see how I was going to be able to progress, uh, but I just to try and move forward. I know B said it, it took a little time for you to become comfortable, Sam, much much sooner, much faster. But there's the element I think that that a lot of people, well, that I would say that surprised me in that you guys both did this trip completely VFR in a VFR airplane, and that is an entirely different challenge, I think, than this sort of, of a trip with an IFR platform and being able to file and go through weather. So I don't know, Sam, was, was the VFR element, did that give you pause? Um, did you feel like that was an extra layer of challenge that maybe, you know, it would take make more sense to wait for a different platform or for more training or something like that? Or did you feel completely comfortable that VFR was the way to do this? It wasn't by choice. Um... IFR gives a number of options, which includes you know, a safer way of doing things. But neither Zara nor Mac had an instrument rating. Mm. The aircraft we chose to use for a number of different reasons is day VFR. Because that's the other thing as well. It's also no night. Oh, during uh, day, yeah. day VFR only. And so that just created a different framework that we had to work within. Um, so it didn't make the journey impossible, clearly. But it definitely made it more difficult and also was a, was a factor in how long both of their circumnavigations took. Uh, and there were a number of, of a, a huge number of times when they weren't able to fly, when if they had been in an aircraft or had themselves been capable of flying an IMC and or flying at night, uh, they could have carried on more quickly and more efficiently. So it was a, it was a, it was a, a big factor in the planning. But all it did is, is it was something else that needed to be managed correctly and safely, uh, which is mm. what they both did. 
Yeah. So, and speaking of whether it be, I would imagine there are many sleepless nights where you're talking to the kids while they're while they're somewhere halfway around the world. You're talking about the weather. You're worrying about it, and and so there's there's got to be a give and take there uh, between being a mom, being a mentor on the trip, and a support system, and and knowing what they're facing, and that that had to be really difficult at times. Yeah, it, it was very very difficult. I try to do some of the flight following in the very beginning, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I and I understood very early on that that was just not what what I could take when I saw Zara doing. The first bit of the transatlantic, I, I remember her turning round at some stage, and 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 I was like, why, why is she turning round? And then calling Sam and going, she's just turned round and she's over the ocean, and what is going on? And and he said, yeah, there's a storm, and don't worry, we're working at it. And uh, and I went like, right, that's it. I'm I'm not doing the the life life following anymore. I just get my heart can't take it. Uh, but many nights, yes, many sleepless nights. Uh, Sam was up, up many, many nights because he was, uh, together with Megan, they were doing the flight following, Megan Bowden, who is also a pilot, and, and she's been extremely helpful to us. And they were sharing uh, from, from different places in the world um, this this night shifts, uh, if you want, mm-hmm. um, which, which is quite hard because at the same time, we were still trying to do your or other jobs or other things we had to do. I was going to say, yeah, you, you can't put your life completely on hold. Yeah, yeah, it was it, it, it was an interesting year. It was it was, it was, I had, it was very odd. I had jet lag without actually going anywhere. Because <laughs> your yeah, your rhythm was completely messed up. Yeah, it didn't matter <laughs> yeah, where you. I had be. no idea what yeah. hour or even what day it was at times. It was, it yeah. was very very some sort of strange blur. I can so, imagine. So at times we we did join Zara once. Uh, well, we were, we we joined her in Mexico when we uh, when she was to land there, and then and then stayed longer than she only landed. You know, we was, only saw her for forty eight hours, and then she kept going. But we stayed because it was it made more sense for us to be in the same end of the world than going back to Europe. And we did the same with Mac uh, when he was to land in Dubai. Again, <laughs> it just made our lives that slightly bit easier than if we stayed at home. Sure, sure. So, Mac, being a younger sibling, I'm a younger sibling, so I know how this feels. You look up to your your older sibling, right? And so you you looked up to her trip. Did you feel a sense of pride for her as she was doing this, or is there a competitiveness between the two of you? Obviously, you've now accomplished this a little bit younger, which I don't know. How does she feel about that? Do you guys rib each other about it, or is it all? There's lots of love of the family. No, it's com- it's completely fine because well, first of all, the the records are, are different. Even though mm-hmm. I did it younger, she was youngest woman, and I was youngest person, so sure. uh, they don't really collide with each other. But also, it she was hugely instrumental in helping me. I would probably not have gotten the idea of doing something like this like this if she hadn't gotten the idea first. And so, even though I did it younger, I there's no com- competition between us. We're just very supportive of each other. Oh, that's great. And am I Right. I was trying to do the math. Did you guys finish almost within, was it the exact same number of days or within a day of each other? It was very close, wasn't it? Yes. It, I think I did in something like, it was something like five months and one day and five months and two days or something like that. The difference. Yeah, but it's incredible. I, As if it were sure. planned. I mean, it's amazing. <laughs> well, it wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> the long delays, definitely. I know. Yeah, the yeah, random delays. Yeah. So now not only were you a little bit younger, but you're also, you know, you did it faster, right? So you can 
you can get her with that too. Yeah. yeah. So Mac, you're back at school. Most people on vacation, they might go to the beach or something. You obviously flew around the world. So what do your what do your friends think? So they've they've also been like really happy about this. Actually, tomorrow I'm landing on the plane playing pitches before heading back to Belgium. That should be really fun. And uh, yeah, it's, it's just been amazing. I've had to work. I've been working really hard at the moment, trying to get all my schoolwork sorted out. But hopefully I, I should catch up and just be able to, to carry on with, with my life and hopefully keep flying. Yeah, great. And so I was going to ask you, what, what's next? I mean, you've had this amazing accomplishment very young. Other than finishing school and passing your A-levels and all that, what, what's what's after this? So after this, I definitely think I'm going to go to a university. So I'm looking at universities at the moment, but I'm not entirely sure yet. Uh, and uh, next is back flying. I'm, I, in the end, I think that's where, where I'm going to go into as a job, mm-hmm. just flying. But I'm not entirely sure in what area, just that I want to fly in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Well, good luck, and thank you all so much for the time. I really appreciate it. It's an amazing accomplishment for the family, and um, I, I know tough, tough times at time B and and Sam, but um, I think it's an amazing thing. And thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Ian. the most amazing thing to me was that Mac didn't even start planning his trip until I think Zara was home or almost home. And he went like two months later. So that was, that was amazing. And then also they took almost, they took, this wasn't planned. They took almost exactly the same number of days to do it. Like within a day of each other. Well, you know, the other thing is that there you've got to have a little brother and sister rivalry there. Yeah. You know? So yeah. sis, sister did it first and hang on, wait a minute, we're not done yet. I remember when the announcement came out that he was going to attempt that, I was thinking, wow, she just finished, you know, yeah. it didn't take long for the family to, to pick it up and, and try to crank it out again. And, you know, with, uh, like I said, you've got to have the support. Uh, even Adrian Eichhorn will tell you, and he's been around the world a couple of times, that it is not... It is not just one person. It is a Can't staff. Do it you know, you have to have a support team. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. All right, David, you, you want to fly around the world someday? I wouldn't mind it, Ian. I think yeah. it would be really interesting. I think it, it really, you know what? It really depends on, I think, a lot of the uh, the, the political climate and also mm. lately COVID-19. Yeah. Uh, but it would be as a pilot, I, I would like that. I get into planning the flights uh, that I take. Um, you know, I try to micro plan a little bit, maybe a little too much. Yeah. But I think it would be neat. And it would be a, like a combination between that and, and, and like hiking the Appalachian Trail where you ship your packages and food oh, yeah. ahead of in time, advance, you know. Yeah. So what's the, you know, they did it in, in, in a, I mean, what's essentially an ultralight. It's what they call it. I think oh, maybe a, a micro cool airplane certification. It is very Beautiful cool. airplane. It is cool. So what would be your, what's your minimum airplane size to fly around the world? Oh, I think a two-person airplane would do it. Oh, really? Yeah, I'd be okay with that. Oh man. Yeah, but uh, you know, it's I, intense. You'd you'd rather have a, a bigger airplane like a one seventy two or something I, like I, that. I'd like a little more fuel, I think. Or like maybe a twin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Give me another engine for the yeah. for the northern. Yeah, Atlantic. I think that would be good going yeah. over the there ocean. You, you know, for you know yeah. eight hundred miles at a at a lick. But I think once you get to a twin, it's like you have to stop promoting yourself because especially when you get into a turboprop or like a jet it's like okay okay, okay yeah, we get right. it you know you can yeah. do this yeah. yeah so 
<laughs> well, uh, maybe we'll make plans to do it. Maybe maybe we'll do it. You know, uh, well, maybe we'll do it together one day. Who there knows? you go. Maybe it won't be solo. It'll just yeah. be a, a hangar talk team effort. There you go. All right. That's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tools. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash podcast and wherever you get your podcasts. All right. We'll see you next time. All right. See you. Hangar Talk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly.